I'd like to introduce my panel and um, some department representatives that have been gracious enough to take time to be here with us today to provide you with information regarding landlord and tenant issues associated with property maintenance, which is going to be the focus of our presentation today. Um, let me introduce um, Senior Housing Inspectors Andy Cars and Patrick McKenzie, and Housing Inspector Jamie Sabin-Matsu, Executive Director of the San Francisco Apartment Association, Janan New, um, Tommy Abicola-Mecca, Counselor from the Housing Rights Committee, and uh, in addition to that, Mr. Joel Panzer, President of the Property Professional Property Management Association. These individuals, along with Delane Wolf from the Rent Board, the Executive Director, Good morning, Delane, and thank you for coming. Dr. Johnson Ojo the, uh, from the Environmental Health Section of the Department of Public Health, thank you. Yvonne Mari, who is a Deputy City Attorney with the Office of the City Attorney, the Code Enforcement Division, and Captain Tom Harvey of the San Francisco Fire Department. Tom, thank you for coming. Let's talk about tenant-landlord responsibilities. And let's first of all talk about tenants. Obviously, the first thing that we always ask when we get a call from a, an occupant of a building is, have you talked with the property owner about those conditions? Have you made them aware of what the situation is? And we always encourage you to do that and communicate with the property owner. And also, when a property owner undertakes to make those repairs, to provide, once you're provided with adequate notice under state law, to make sure that you make the area accessible if it's within a unit that you occupy so that those repairs can be done in a timely way. And if you find that that response is not forthcoming, then call us. And at the very end of the presentation, we'll be putting our contact information up on the screen. The landlord's responsibility is to survey their property frequently, and that's going to depend upon building design, the building age, the wear and tear, and the use of the property. The second thing is, is to provide safe, functional housing, and also to make timely repairs, to get yourself on a schedule that works for you, your building, and your building occupants. And then if a notice of violation is issued to a property owner by the Department of Building Inspection, to work with the inspector to ask the questions, to get the information you need uh, in which to respond in a timely way. Um, the notices of violation do have a time frame for compliance, but an inspector will work with a property owner if additional time is necessary, provided that there is a good faith effort going on with respect to, to correct violations. So what are the realities that you're facing? Well, we all know that we have aging housing stock. The majority of housing in the city and, uh, city and county of San Francisco is older housing. That means that it's not built to what would be the, the building, plumbing, electrical code, and mechanical code requirements for today. Also, we know that we have high density in the city. We have a housing shortage. And with design and construction and the cost to make repairs, we know that this is a difficult process. So what do we do to assist you with this? Well, we provide training and education. Our technical services division provides brown bag lunches and other training. That's also one of the purposes why we're here today. We also try and provide you informational materials, and you're going to be seeing more and more of these materials on the department's website. Again, we have a wealth of information here for you in this room and downstairs in the lobby. 
Also, we provide outreach, and Inspector Sabematsu and others here will be talking a little bit further about the services that they provide with respect to that. But we also, if you can go back to that last slide, we also provide uh, inspections with respect to when we receive complaints or when the code requires us to do an inspection of a residential building or a building that has residential use within it. And if necessary, if we do find violations, then we will start the code enforcement process, which will also be summarized a little further on in this session. And we, we interact with several, several different groups, city agencies, to be able to accomplish that. One of those things that we do is to provide outreach, and we have several contractors that do that. They provide counseling, training, trans, uh, translation services, and mediation. We have individuals within different communities that may be afraid to come to the city, but will go to a, a neighborhood agency where maybe they can't speak English and they need some assistance with that. We provide that service. We also have uh, services provided by um, experts in, in assisting property owners and questions they might have. Next slide. So this is just a list of those agencies that we interact with, and it's some a very, of, of a great larger number of individuals, and some of which we have brought here today to uh, assist in the question and answer session. And this is just, just barely scratches the surface, surface and is representative of that which we provide. So now what we're going to do is we're going to move on to that portion of the session where we're going to highlight those areas in this green checklist of things that we've encountered and things that we want you all to think about as building owners and occupants as far as developing a good maintenance plan to keep these buildings safe and functional for you, for the building occupants, and the greater community at large. So with that, let me introduce again a senior housing inspector, Andy Cars, who's going to talk a little bit about that. Thank you, um, Ms. Bosky. Uh, good morning, and again, welcome. For, thank you for coming. Um, as Ms. Bosky mentioned, I'm going to highlight some aspects for you to think about in developing a good maintenance plan. And one of the first things you want to do is to be able to get in and get out of a building. Uh, all your stairways should be free of any debris or obstacles, not only to allow your occupants to get out, but also to allow emergency personnel to get in. Next, please. The fire escape should also be free of any debris or, or obstacles, uh, such as like this. Your, um, your, fire, your escape ladders should be checked and make sure they operate properly. Um, next slide, please. This is a, an extreme example of a dilapidated stairway. Uh, you check all the elements of your stairway, the landings, decks, handrails, uh, on an annual basis to ensure that they're, they're uh, for, for any decay or, or any um, um, deterioration. Um, you want to assure that all your structures are, in, in, are stable and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're function properly. And as always, if you're making any repairs, you should take out the appropriate uh, building permits. As you know, we live in an earthquake-prone area. Um, it's very important to have a shut-off tool placed near uh, the, uh, the gas meters, as well as uh, posting a diagram of how to shut off the gas meters um, in the public area. 
the, uh, all residential buildings, three units or larger, are also required to have fire extinguishers, which need to be recharged and day-tagged on an annual basis. Heat. In any residential building, three units larger or residential hotels where there is a um, central heating source such as a boiler or gas furnace system, the requirements are to maintain a 68-degree temperature for 13 hours a day. The time clock should be set between the hours of 5 to 11 a.m. and 3 to 10 p.m. Heat must be provided during those hours. Uh, as we're now entering the full, uh, um, full area, and um, you want to uh, check your time clocks when there's a daylight savings time. Make sure you adjust them accordingly. Your boiler systems, can you go back, please? Your boiler systems should also need to be inspected and certified, and the, the, the certification should be posted there for inspections to see. Here are some possible outcomes of deferred maintenance. Ceilings and walls are deteriorating, mold and mildew. There's actually uh, water intrusion in this area, water intrusion through this area. They need to be free of all this, obviously, and the proper maintenance and weatherproofing around the walls. Public bathrooms in residential hotels, these are actual pictures. They must be maintained and functional, free of any debris, and all fixtures should work properly. Uh, maintenance of, this, uh, of the bathrooms depend, of course, on the building size and the density of the occupancy load. Um, you know, if you have a, a high occupancy load, you should probably have your staff check these bathrooms two or three times on a daily basis. Community kitchens, the requirements are electrical uh, cooking, a clean surface in order to, to prepare food, non-absorbent uh, surface, um, storage for your uh, residents to be able to put some of their uh, um, cooking utilities in. On the hot water and, and uh, hot water heaters, they should be properly strapped, double strapped. The, the top third and lower third should be strapped. The pressure relief valve should be, vent, should be going out to a approved source, uh, vented properly. Uh, if this is inside a garage, it should also be 18 inches from off of the floor. This is what you don't want to do. You don't want to confuse your residents, especially in an emergency when time is of the essence. We, know, we never know when a fire is going to hit us. And the last thing you want to do is for your, your residents or occupants or guests to be running now and trying to figure out which way did they go, that way or this way. Any building that's three stories or higher, five units or larger, are required to have a fire alarm smoke panel. It needs to be certified on an annual basis. Smoke detectors need to be battery operated. Uh, ba battery, have battery backup and they should be checked also annually. So development good maintenance plans. It, it prevents injuries, death, building damage, and promotes safe, functional, and sanitary housing. We only had an opportunity to highlight some of the core items to develop, developing a good maintenance plan. There is at uh, the side of the room some other brochures that you should please take advantage of. The maintenance, maintenance checklist that uh, Chief Bosco mentioned that has 33 items. Uh, I'm now going to turn this over to my colleague, Senior Patrick, Pat McKenzie, to go over some of the code enforcement process. Why do we do inspections? Inspections are conducted as a result of a 
complaint either by the public or an agency referral or as part of a code-required systematic enforcement program commonly referred to as a routine inspection. Now, once we do an inspection and repairs are required, a notice of violation is issued to the property owner. Typically, after inspection, 90% of notice of violations are abated. However, if they are not, please turn your attention to the highlighted blue cells on our flow chart here. These blue cells illustrate the critical pathway of the code enforcement process. An issued notice of violation describes repairs and corrective actions needed to comply with a notice and gives a compliance deadline. Building, plumbing, and electrical permits may be required to do this work. It is the owner's responsibility to call for re-inspection. Now, all repairs done, great. The notice is abated, and we will check to ensure that proper permits, if required, are also signed off at that inspection. All repairs not done, but an owner is complying in good faith, the inspector may grant more time to do the work. Now, if repairs are not done, the notice, or at this point in time, case, is referred to a director's hearing. Now, the purpose of the director's hearing is to give a property owner what we call, in legal terms, allows a property owner to show cause as to why the repairs have not been completed. This hearing is open to public, and we hear testimony and evidence there. Now, at this hearing, the director's hearing, the hearing representative may issue an order of abatement, he may grant more time to comply, or he may refer the case back to staff. Once an order is issued, the property owner must comply with the notice within a prescribed period of time. This order is also recorded on land use records. The owner may appeal the order to the abatement appeal boards within 10 days of posting and service of the order. Now, if an order is issued, the owner is charged assessment of costs for inspector's time and also administrative time during the code enforcement, and the property owner may be lien if payment has not been made. So, doing repair work by the compliance deadline will prevent these costs, and the department recommends that owners survey their property quarterly for maintenance and repairs and develop, as previously mentioned, a good maintenance plan. Still no compliance. With the order, the case may be referred to the litigation subcommittee, which is composed of members of the building inspection commission and staff, which review and approve a case to the city attorney's office. The city attorney may file a complaint or injunction against the property owner for violating the code enforcement program. 
for not making repairs and charge civil penalties under the San Francisco Housing Code and state law. The city attorney may also recover attorney fees and the housing inspections code, excuse me, housing inspections code enforcement costs. After litigation, um, a reinspection is conducted by the department to ensure that all work is done. And the case will be abated upon payment of fees, penalties, and assessments of costs. In closing, I would like to mention two other code enforcement tools that may be used after the initial notice of violation is issued throughout this process. One is the issuance of a misdemeanor or infraction citation, and the other is referral to the Franchise Tax Board, which just allows state income tax return deductions for rental income properties. If you have any further questions, uh, our staff will be, will be available later on to answer questions. And if you haven't already got one, we have a very nice brochure on the code enforcement process over here. I'd like to turn the presentation back over to the moderator, Chief Bosky. Thank you, Patrick. Okay, note to self, schedule this session next year after lunch because of the photographs. We do apologize for that, but did you like the photographs? Did they, did they kind of show what we have to deal with here and what, what to avoid? Also, with respect to the code enforcement process, we really, really don't want to have property owners have to go through that process. Can we put the slide back up there showing the code enforcement process? If you do have to go through it, we would like when we do a reinspection that you're, you're complete with all the work or you're almost there so that we go from the reinspection to abated. We really, really want to end up here rather than going through and having to use all of uh, those extra steps. So work with us. That, I guess, is the single message with respect to that. So now I'd like to introduce uh, Housing Inspector Jamie Sabinmatsu, who is the, co the coordinator for our Code Enforcement Outreach Program. Jamie? Well, Housing Inspection Services tries to maintain minimum standards of habitability, the Code Enforcement Outreach Program tries to foster harmony and cooperation between tenants and landlords. We have seen tenants who file complaints and then won't let the landlords in to perform the work and then litigate. We have also seen landlords who evict tenants who are filing legitimate complaints and are doing so and you know in their full within their rights. And we've seen this over and over again a thousand times. Our view, however, is that a tenant can't be a tenant without a landlord. A landlord can't be a landlord without tenants. We need each other. We need one another. So we have established a counseling service that offers informal mediation for people who need help, landlords or tenants. We try to solve the problem before it becomes a housing inspection complaint case or something much larger. We offer help in Mandarin, Cantonese, Toishanese, Spanish, Russian, Italian, and Vietnamese, and English. We find that many people don't know their rights, but far more often they don't respect the rights of others. Just imagine if people thought of the rights of others first. And communication is important. We urge you to communicate, communicate, communicate. 
That is your responsibility. And try to imagine how much greater the city would be if we all did that. Thank you. I think that that says it all as far as why we're here today. And now I would like to introduce Janan New, Executive Director of the Apartment Association, San Francisco Apartment Association. Janan, thank you for coming. Thank you, Rosemary, and thank you all for coming, and thanks for, to DBI for having me here. Um, I'm the director of the San Francisco Apartment Association. We're a nonprofit uh, that's been in existence in San Francisco since 1917, uh, working on behalf of rental housing providers here in the city. We're parented by the California Apartment Association and the National Apartment Association, and um, I believe that we bring a lot of resources uh, to the table to help property owners uh, in many different areas, but uh, the area we're here to talk about today especially is building maintenance. There's a couple of things that struck me when I was listening to today's presentation that I wanted to talk to you all about. I've been involved in this program and helped start the program, the Code Enforcement Outreach Program, uh, along with Jamie and Tommy and others um, 10 years ago. We just had our 10th anniversary. And I've been uh, doing my job for 12 years, and this is probably the one area of my work on a daily basis that I think is the most productive and the most rewarding. And the reason that is is because we truly bring property owners and tenants together to resolve issues. And the program is very goal-oriented. It's very non-bureaucratic. Um, it's very non-political. And Tommy and I fight together on political issues all the time. But when we work on this program, we have a common goal. And that goal is making sure that a property is habitable and the owner is not harassed by the tenant and the tenant is not harassed by the owner. So three quick suggestions before I turn um, the time over to Tommy. Um, when an owner gets an, an NOV, they tend to panic. And it's like when we come out and we see a parking ticket on our car, except, you know, that's probably ten times worse to get an NOV. And they go into panic mode, which means they don't do anything. And that NOV sits there for a period of time. Well, what I would like to recommend to all the property owners in the room is when you get that NOV, you know, you can utilize our services for free. Um, or what I always recommend is call the housing inspector. The number is right at the bottom of the, of the NOV. Call them immediately and start that dialogue going. Because by not doing anything and not doing that, either calling us in on the Code Enforcement Outreach Program or calling the housing inspector, you are just accelerating your cost to yourself and you're accelerating your time to get to the bottom of that food chain, which is the city attorney's office, which is where none of us want to be. Um, so first do that. It's going to save you money. Um, and why this program was initially designed is to not only save a property owner money, but to save the city money. So we can put more tax dollars into programs to help everyone rather than staff time trying to follow up and call you to get you to perform what is your responsibility ultimately. Um, so communicate to that housing inspector, communicate to us vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Code Enforcement Outreach Program. And again, 
in conclusion, this program is about partnering to accomplish a goal. So we will be your partner in trying to accomplish uh, you getting the repairs fixed. If you need help at the fire department, we can access help at the fire department for you. If you need mental health help because your tenant is having dementia or hoarding and cluttering disorders or whatever, we can access and, and get you that help. If it's a personality conflict, you know, Tommy will work with the tenant, we'll work with you as the owner, and we'll bring uh, all the pieces together to hopefully solve the issue in um, a short amount of time. So that is it, and thank you for listening. Thank you, Janan. And now I'd like to introduce Tommy Avakoli Mecca. He's a counselor from the Housing Rights Committee of San Francisco. Tommy. Thank you. I think Janan said a lot of what I was going to say about the purpose of the program and the way the, per the program works. So maybe um, I'll just jump right in since we have a limited amount of time and talk about from the tenant's end of it. Basically, a tenant walks into our office. Uh, we, we have counseling Monday through Thursday from 1 to 5 at our office, um, and we offer it in English, Spanish, Mandarin, Cantonese, and Russian, Russian on Tuesdays only. Um, and a tenant walks in. They talk to a counselor. They identify some problems they're having. Uh, repair issues, leaks, mold, whatever. And one of the options that we offer the tenant is the option of CEOP. The option, um, number one, we can go out and actually visit the property along with someone from the apartment association, and we will look at the problem, and then, and then the person from the apartment association will call to talk to the landlord, and we will continue working with the tenant. And again, the whole purpose of it is to bring the two sides together, bring the two parties together, and get them working together. As I think Jamie said, sometimes tenants don't want to let landlords in to do repairs, you know, and landlords have to come in to do repairs. If the repairs are going to get done, they got to come in and have access to the apartment. So we will try to facilitate all of that. Um, I thought I would give you a couple examples of the kinds of cases that we've resolved really quickly. As Janan said, speed is really what we're all about. I had a, a phone call from a mother with two children whose electricity went out. She had no electricity, no heat. This was in the middle of winter. So I asked her what the problem was. I said, did you not pay your PG&E bill? She says, well, my landlord pays PG&E. And she said she called the landlord that morning, and he said that he couldn't afford the bill and that he, w he wasn't sure when he was going to pay, pay for the PG&E and get the to stop back on. Well, obviously, it's a clear violation. So I called Greg, who was then working at the Department Association, and wh whom I was working with, and he talked to the landlord. And within 48 hours, everything was back on. Things were taken care of. It was really quick. It was, um, but it needed to be. I mean, my mother with children in the middle of winter, it was not acceptable that she went without heat and electricity. Um, an another case um, that was particularly interesting was um, a woman who came in who spoke Spanish, and I happen to speak Spanish, from Central America. Um, she had, she described to me um, a curtain of roaches down her one wall, constantly, just crawling up and down her wall. She had leaks, she had mold, she had all kinds of things. She lived in a one-room apartment in the Mission with um, two kids. She was a single mom. And uh, she spoke Spanish, not a whole lot of English. Her landlord was Chinese and spoke Chinese and, and some English, but they w didn't have enough English in common to be able to really communicate. And, and I figured that out pretty quickly. That, that was probably the problem. So I called over the Department Association, and they called over. They had someone from their office call over to the landlord. I think it was Crystal maybe. Talked to the landlord. She speaks Chinese. 
And I continued speaking with the tenant, and we got the problems taken care of. I don't remember exactly the num amount of time it took because that was about two years ago that this case happened. But it's, again, an example of what we can do that – it was a language barrier. It wasn't that the landlord didn't want to fix the problems. He just didn't – he wasn't quite understanding what was going on with that situation, and we were able to mediate that without getting DBI involved. Um, and the final case I'll mention is a case – a re more recent case where Sean, who works at the Pro Apartment Association now, he and I went out to a site visit on Bush Street, and the tenant had called me and was complaining. It was a senior complaining about a number of problems, among which was a heater, but he didn't make it sound like the heater was very serious. When we got there, Sean, who I think has had um, experience as a property manager, immediately realized that the heater problem was a lot more serious because it was uh, one of those old radiators. And Sean was looking at it, and he said, wait a minute, this is leaking, and there was all wetness on the rug. And he started looking at it, and he said, well, wait a minute, this, this, is this on all the time? This happened to be a warm day. And the tenant said, yeah, I can't shut it off. It doesn't shut off. So Sean realized it was a really serious situation with the heater, and so he went back and called the landlord. And the heater did get fixed, but if, if Sean hadn't noticed, I mean, because I would have noticed that there was something wrong with the heater, but I don't have the experience to really notice how serious the, the heater really was and how seriously it needed to be fixed. Plus, there were some other things wrong with the apartment, but that tenant has had all of his problems taken care of at this point. So I, I think, again, I think the key here is that we work together. And, you know, I, when I got hired at the Housing Rights Committee, which is a tenants' rights organization, and we advocate for the tenants, um, I never realized that I would be working with a landlord group and that, and that we would be cooperating really well and that we'd be doing it to the benefit of the tenant and the landlord. And I think that this is really a unique program, and it's one of those only in San Francisco scenarios. You would not think that in San Francisco we could do, pull off something like this, but we have. And I think it's something that we really, really, really need, need to be proud of because I know I'm really proud of being part of this program. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. And now we'll hear from Joel Panzer, president of the P Professional Property Management Association. Joel. Thank you. All the best lines have been taken. <laughs> um, you know, when I founded the uh, PPMA, the Professional Property Management Association, about 24 years ago now, one of our founding philosophies was basically that while there was a lot of things happening with uh, rent control and with new ordinances coming down one after another, uh, it began to seem like uh, property, man, uh, property owners and tenants were adversaries. We tried to develop a philosophy that we really don't have an adversarial relationship if we have any kind of a relationship with a symbiotic one. We need good tenants to populate buildings and help us pay bills, and they need effective and responsible owners and managers to take care of the buildings. When that relationship works, it works beautifully. And that's our basic founding operation. Today, uh, professional management is something, and I speak to the owners at this point, is to say that it's something that owners may have to start looking at because it is becoming a much more complex business than it has ever been with new laws, new ordinances, new things to deal with, new understanding the myriad of regulations. And professional managers are constantly training themselves, are, are participating and dealing with effective uh, tools and communicating with all the people that are here. And, and so sometimes managers uh, are a, an answer for owners who feel a little bit overwhelmed by the requirements that, that happen. Also because it kind of puts a, uh, takes some of the adversarial sting between the owners and the tenants out of the, out of the equation. Uh, our uh, effective management helps the owners to make decisions and helps them to, 
take a step back without uh, feeling the tremendous pinch and also offers them the opportunity maybe to save some money because we have better connections. So professional management helps the owners to do the things, the right things for their tenants and helps the tenants uh, to communicate in a, in a better way. Um, the future, as I see it in, in the city, is we're going to see, uh, I just attended a, another conference with the DBI on uh, seismic retrofit. And the future says we're going to have a lot more complex issues to relate to over the next few years. They're going to be tough issues, and they're going to require a tremendous amount of give and take between landlords and tenants. And this kind of, this kind of conference is an opportunity for us to talk and to be able to uh, work out our differences and to keep this in an arena of constructive uh, uh, information and be able to, to, to grow together and to keep the city strong and to provide the kind of, of effective housing and to maintain the housing stock of the city of San Francisco. Thank you, Mr. Panzer. We're going to, in a minute or two, go on to the question and answer session. And before we do, for those of you um, uh, who aren't aware, before you leave, please do fill out the evaluation form. We'll remind you again after the question and answer session. And just to kind of sum up the comments, which I think are all um, well taken, Interaction and communication are so important, and we never know when those interactions are going to occur. I remember a number of years ago being in the hospital for a procedure where I was helpless, kind of like I'm sure how property owners feel when they get a notice of violation, as Janan was mentioning. And the nurse who was helping me looked at my name tag and said, Rosemary Bosky, Rosemary Bosky, what do you do? And I said, I'm a housing inspector. And she said, oh, you inspected my building. And here I was laying there. I won't tell you what the procedure was. This is true. And so I had, I thought for a second, what do I say next? <laughs> and I said, was I nice? <laughs> and she says, yes, you were very nice. My husband was very nervous, but you answered all his questions. So one of the things that we want you to take away with today is, is that we believe in public service. We're here to help you. You know, on occasionally you might get that interaction that you didn't want, but give us a call. We're always willing to help and help you work through the matter. And as you see, everybody here at this table and those that are sitting in the front from the other departments are, are, are helping too, and we're constantly interacting with them and willing to interact with you so that we get you the result that you need and what that we all want. So with that, let's open it up to question and answer. And if those who would like to answer a question will come up to that microphone there, we'll do our best to try and address those questions. The other thing I'd like to mention is if you have some case-specific issues, we would ask that you hold those questions for after the session so that we could address those specifically with, with the staff that's here that um, can answer that for you. So thank you, and let's go ahead with the question and answer. So first question. Hi, Tommy. Um, it looks like you've um, mentioned mostly about um, tenants, helping out tenants. What do you have in regards to helping out um, landlords? Because um, if in case um, there's, you know, there's several items that I actually listed here, you know, like possible 
scenarios. Um, you can all lump it up into one tenant. If, you know, sometimes it happens into these cases. And last thing most landlords want to do is um, to evict their tenant, of course. But um, what sort of support do you give the landlord if the tenant refused to pay their share of the utility bill if, you know, all the bills go directly to the landlord and they're supposed to pay, you know, a certain portion of it? And uh, if they occasionally short the rent payment and the violate the property rules and regulations and they're retaliatory and they refuse to pay the rent increase. And as you know, um, with the high costs of property ownership nowadays, you know, the mortgage increase and interest increases and the maintenance and repair increases also along with property depreciation and um, city requirement changes. Is there anything that you, yeah, help in that case? And, um, she's looking at you, Janan. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take this, Tommy and I discussed briefly while you were outlining that uh, litany of tenant problems that perhaps you or somebody you know is having. Um, typically, the way that the code enforcement outreach program works is you as an owner, if you're the owner or you're representing the owner, and you have a tenant that's not paying or they're harassing you or they're doing things that are causing you problems in your relationship, you would call us and then we would uh, call Tommy's organization and he would talk to your tenant as we are counseling you. So there are certain laws that have to be followed by tenants and by owners. And we would assist you uh, in your part of it, and Tommy would counsel the tenants on what their responsibilities are, at, such as paying rent, etc. cetera. At, at some point, you know, there are ways and there are education courses that we provide uh, with DBI and other city organizations about how to structure your tenancy uh, relationship as to avoid some of these problems. So, you know, there, there are certain things that can be done. Yeah. No, let me just add that we, we never recommend that a tenant withhold rent ever, even though under state law there are, there are scenarios where tenants can withhold rent, especially when repairs haven't been done, they've complained, et cetera, et cetera. But we always tell tenants, pay your rent. If you have agreements with your landlord, you know, get relief some way else. You know, go to the rent for a decrease in services or go to DBI or work with the CL program, whatever. But we, we always tell tenants, pay your rent, always. But we would counsel you as the owner and work with Tommy as he's counseling right. the tenant and try to, you know, find a place to meet in the middle. Okay. Thank you. Um, when a three-unit apartment building is converted to a two-unit building, are plumbing, electrical, and building inspections mandatory due to the different codes that apply to three-unit and two-unit buildings? When you wish to convert a building from three units to two units, that is going to require a building permit be filed. Electrical and plumbing permits will be required as well. And there is a document called a Certificate of Final Completion and Occupancy that will be issued associated with the final approval of that building permit to show that you've changed the use from a three to a two unit building under the building code. And essentially what it means is you're going from an apartment building under the code to a two family dwelling and the requirements are a little bit different. Um, 
and it's a process by which before you file a building permit to do that you want to check with the department of city planning because when you go from three units to two units the planning commission has certain ideas and requirements as far as the loss of dwelling units so that would be the process thank you you're welcome hi thanks for having this it's really great to be able to come here I'm thank you for coming and uh, I, there seems to be an epidemic of urination and defecation everywhere. I live a few blocks from here inside a dead-end alley. My property, I mean, my, my landlord's property uh, is comprised by three buildings, and we have uh, a lot of uh, homeless services right around the corner from where I live. Many of these people mill around and come down into our little cul-de-sac. Convenient place to do their dirty business, all sorts of things, not just urination and defecation. However, my, my uh, landlord's property is covered. One, one wall in the entrance of the alley is, for all practical purposes, a urinal, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. If it's not wet, it's drying, <laughs> and it stinks. And uh, I have complained everywhere to everyone, and we're sorry, that's just the way it is, is what I usually hear. Move, I'm told. <laughs> um, the walls are covered with poop. And I have many, many thousands of pictures of people urinating and defecating day and night, people in business suits, <laughs> people who are not so well-dressed. Um, once the poop is there, it's there. Nobody wants to touch it. Nobody. Department of Public Works will not pick it up. Um, and I get arguments from the different divisions of different departments as to who's responsible for the sidewalk, who's responsible for the street, who's responsible for the wall of the building. Well, they're all touching. <laughs> we live there, and it is affecting us. Thank you for your question. Um, and, it's, and as we walk through the city, we do see things of that nature. First of all, it is the responsibility of the property owner to address uh, and keep sanitary the outside of the building. Obviously, though, the reality of the matter is, is that they, you know, are not responsible for policing that. And with, you know, limited resources, it's very difficult to keep people from doing that. So one of the ways in which to affect change is for the property owner to make sure that that area is clean. It's kind of like graffiti. More graffiti invites, you know, similar behavior. Have you talked with the property owner? Yes. Okay. And, they, and they say they, quote, unquote, care. But if you look okay. at the building, the building represents something that the owner does not care about. Well, what, what I think we should do in a situation like this is have you get together with our outreach coordinators, both Janan and Tommy, and they can start the conversation, and then we'll assist as we can, because obviously sanitation is an issue that falls under the jurisdiction of the, of the housing code and the health code. Um, and uh, I think it would be best if we start there. So if you would like to stay after and talk with them further, get their contact information, the brochure that's entitled the Code Enforcement Outreach Program does have that information, and we've been happy to talk with you after the session. Your question, please. I have two questions. One is uh, tenants who smoke. What are the rules regarding that? Against smoking? Tenants who smoke, so, yes. Well, there is nothing in the San Francisco Housing Code that falls under the jurisdiction of the Department of Building Inspection. Mm -hmm. Dr. Eljo, is there anything in the, housing, in the health code that addresses that? I can address that if you want. Okay, Janan? Um, Smoking is a very complicated issue. Um, mm -hmm. We have some articles on our website, um, or I can fax them to you, that have been recently written about um, cigarette smoke. Mm -hmm. um, general rule of thumb is you can outlaw smoking at the onset of the tenancy. 
but if a tenant is currently resides in the unit and they're smoking, there's mm -hmm. not a lot you can do about it. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, in San Francisco, we live uh, in an area that there's wind blowing all the time. So you could have somebody on the street and secondhand smoke's going to blow into their unit. You could have somebody in the building next door and the smoke's going to blow into the, into the unit. It's very difficult to control. There's dialogue going on now at the Board of Supervisors in some legislation that Supervisor Ross Mercarimi has in regards to uh, cigarette smoke. So there's currently that dialogue going on. But, you know, there's more resources either off of our website, which is, as uh, mentioned in the Code Enforcement Outreach brochure, mm -hmm. or I can give you my card afterwards okay, and send some articles that kind of outline the complexities from an owner and a tenant perspective. Okay, my second question is, um, who do we contact to actually get enforcement for the pooper scooper law? When people let their dogs poop on the sidewalk in front of your building and don't clean it up. Yeah, I, I believe DPW, it's Department DPW. of Public Works. Yeah, and if you would like to, um, well, you can take your name and number and find out who the contact people are and yes, give you a call back. Yes. And we'll, we, we'll be happy to do that after the session. Okay, great. Thank, Thank you. you. Hello, um, I own an old Edwardian apartment building with the original electrical service, and uh, some of the units have not been improved, so they also have the original service into the units, which is very, very inadequate for the today's demands for things like TVs and um, electrical appliances and things. So I have a tenant who has been there forever, uh, who has requested that I upgrade the electrical service into his unit. And my electrician told me there isn't sufficient um, service into the building. Uh, the whole, the old, whole service to the building would need to be upgraded before I added any more circuits. What is my obligation to this tenant? And by the way, just to help you understand my motivation, he is paying about 2000 a month under market. So I don't want to put one more dime into this unit than necessary. What, what is my obligation to this person? Well, let me address that from a code standpoint, and then I'd like to hear from the tenant and landlord representatives on that. First of all, um, the electrical code isn't retroactive in that if the service that you have is well-maintained and it was put in with proper permit, the city cannot necessarily require you to upgrade it. However, it has to be properly maintained and, and, and maintain in a way that doesn't create any hazards. However, you've just mentioned something that we run into all the time, and that is with today's modern appliances, people, you know, break the circuit breakers, things like that. Yeah. And while I understand your perspective as far as not putting money in, you also have to think about the fact that that sometimes improvements as far as the overall building create a, a safer environment for your investment. So just to let you know, while it's not specifically required unless there's a maintenance issue, um, you know, always have that system checked by an electrician to make sure that it's operating in a safe manner. And maybe Janan may want to talk about that a little further. Yeah, I, I would say um, your obligations to the tenant are outlined in the lease, the contract you signed with them. If yeah, the, there's no written lease from the prior owner. Okay, so you bought the building without yeah. this tenant having a lease. Yeah. Yeah, um, that is something that you um, may want to look into, all of you, if you're purchasing a building, to make sure that your documentation is in order uh, before you sign uh, the dotted line. 
The second part of it is, and I'll probably get tomatoes thrown at me for saying this, but, you know, rent control is the law in San Francisco. And it is not an excuse for not fixing your building or improving your building or trying to run the tenants out by not uh, providing uh, habitable housing. So even though a tenant is paying below market rent under our current rent control laws, you are still required as a landlord to fix your property, maintain your property, uh, and offer them up a habitable unit as it was leased to them in that standard. You're not required to provide new granite countertops or uh, fancy uh, recessed lighting or, um, you know, uh, super uh, telephone lines that, you know, can accommodate their new business. That you're not required to do. But the way the rent control system is set up is there are petitions that you can file at the rent board to get your rents increased. So should you decide to do a major rewiring of your entire building, you can file a capital improvement uh, petition at the rent board, and you may be able to get a, a slight bump in rent to try to compensate that. For that, so that particular, yeah, I'm going to do the petition for this service upgrade to the building. But so do, is the right thing to do here, I kind of want to do the right thing, if I didn't sound like it. Is <laughs> um, the right thing to do, because a lot of old buildings have these problems pervasively, yeah. you know, with older plumbing that's still kind of working, you yeah. know. Is the right thing to do, do the upgrades, and then can I pass through that individual wiring upgrade to that individual tenant? Uh, you can pass it through. We can talk to you a little bit further about that later if you want to give us a call. We're downstairs at the okay. table, too. Because yes, it's could. complicated. I don't want to bore the group on telling you how and yes. what you can do. Hello. Uh, my name is Wallace Oman. I'm a tenant attorney in town, and I have two questions. First is, what is DBI's attitude to and approach toward unlicensed contractors. Second question, are DBI housing inspectors, building inspectors trained in the rights of tenants regarding entries, landlord entries and other entries? And I'm referring particularly Civil Code Section 1954. California Civil Code Section 1954 is referenced in the Housing Code as far as right of entry provisions um, uh, for both landlord and for the inspector. So one of the slides that we had up earlier talked about the responsibilities of a tenant, and it indicated that it is their responsibility to pro provide access to the landlord when they want to make repairs, provided they get adequate notice. So that is uh, one thing that we actually usually have language in our notice of violation in the boilerplate that talks about the fact that the landlord should give adequate notice to the tenant when they make repairs. With respect to unlicensed contractors, um, with, with respect to certain permitted work, we don't like them. I mean, that's really the answer there, although some work doesn't require permit, and so um, they may be appropriate in, with some minor repairs. But with respect to when you're doing work that requires a building permit, particularly in a multifamily dwelling, licensed contractors um, could be necessary in those situations. It does depend upon the specifics. Thank you. Thank you. I live in a two-unit building. There's a guy upstairs who's a master tenant. I am a subtenant, though nothing's in writing. I've met the landlady twice in six years. 
I have several concerns. One is probably a diminish in services. For example, we used to have heat in the building, and then she decided she didn't want to pay for the heat. So for a while, they, my two neighbors were paying for the heat, and then they got tired of paying for the heat. So unless I really, really complain, I'm lucky if I get one hour a day of heat, which obviously, is, according to you guys, is not correct. The other guy says he can't afford to pay for the heat, but is there some way to make the landlady again pay for the heat? She also quit paying for the garbage, so now he pays for that. I basically said if I'm not involved with when the heat's on, I'm not going to pay for it, but I really think she should. I think we have uh, the issues here. Okay. I mean, I, I see where you're going and with this. And where do I start to get these right. things done, too? Let's let Tommy address those because he's the tenant representative. Well, what I was going to suggest was that you come into our office and sit down with one of our counselors because even if you are a subtenant, you still have the same rights as any other tenant. You have the right to have heat. You have the right to live in a habitable environment, all the same rights under California and local law that any other tenant has. So I would like to talk with you, know, with you further on this. It's far too complicated to get into. Okay, thank you. We have time for one more question, and then we've got some announcements. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, somebody mentioned about... Uh, hoarding and clattering disorder uh, in the uh, psychiatric world. I think that is uh, considered a mental disorder. Um, how can Tommy's organization help tenants who have this problem in their rooms? And will the fire department uh, be interested in the issue of uh, fire hazard in this kind of uh, condition? Yeah, actually, we, we, we do see that, that problem among, among tenants, and, and, and we do try to help the tenants. Uh, one thing is trying to connect the tenant up with some kind of service that will actually help them, will actually go into their apartment and try to help them organize things and, you know, relieve the problem of hoarding, cluttering. So we do work with tenants on that. I mean, I can go through the whole process, but it's kind of complicated. But we, but we certainly do work with hoarders and clutterers all the time. I I personally worked with tenants. Uh, one of the things is to contact the landlord and try to, you know, see if the landlord's on the same page with us, if the landlord's willing to, to let us work with, you know, give us time to work with the tenant. Oftentimes the tenant comes in when they've got a 3A notice or a 30-day notice or some kind of notice, so, so, so there's a crisis situation. Um, and in, in that case, then, you know, oftentimes what I like to do is contact the landlord or, or have um, the apartment association contact the landlord and get the landlord in on the process so the landlord understands that this, this tenant is getting help and that, you know, there's somebody who is going to be working with the tenant or trying to work with the tenant to try to relieve the problem because it is a serious issue. There's fire hazards there. There's, there could be health issues there, especially if, you know, the clutter is creating roaches and rats and all kinds of other things. So, so yeah, it, it, it's hard to give a simple answer for a question like that, but, yes, we do work with hoarders and clutterers all the time. When the inspectors encounter that, we will sometimes, if we can, uh, um, contact Adult Protective Services to assist with that because we do encounter that on occasion. Um, and it, it's not only in apartment buildings and residential hotels, but in one- and two-family dwellings. And it is a problem, and we're aware of it. And, and we are participating in community conferences to help uh, greaten the awareness of the, of the problem. But thank you for raising it. That's Can really I just ask point. one more? Uh, is there an allowable or acceptable height of clutter? Well, <laughs> <laughs> don't um, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Since, since you asked for the uh, fire department point of view on it, uh, th there actually is. Is that in a storage in uh, most buildings, if it's non-sprinklered, you're not supposed to store within two feet of the ceiling. You know that that's from fire code. Yeah, you're not going to have ones like this, but that, that's part of the reason is not to have uh, combustibles all the way up to the ceiling. So if something does happen, 
it will flash over, which would not be a good thing. And we do work with housing and these different groups to try and help these people because usually it is some sort of mental issue. Uh, you can call fire department. We're all going to huddle together to try and help these people. It's certainly not that we go in, write a violation, hanging onto the landlord and say, well, you got a problem there and walk away and, you know, call us back when it's fixed. We, we realize almost every time it's somebody who's a little older and they just have it in their mind. They have to hang on to this paper, that paper, and now their whole house, like Rosemary has said, their whole house is just completely like the little trail you have to walk through, and they're still functioning, and how long does that happen? But we're there to help the people and to try and get them the resources. So it's not so much a code enforcement issue as helping these people get some of the resources they need because most of the time they're alone. They don't have the family structure and it's not like the daughter and son live next door. You know, they're, they're from another state or whatever else or they're, or they're all alone. So, you know, I, I would say, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, we realize that some of these issues are fire hazards and we always make the call whether it is or isn't. But if it's in a living room, you know, from a practical point and there's not really anything that's going to start a fire there, then it's more of the health issues and the housing uh, code inspection issues if it's in the kitchen and it's going to be throughout the whole house and it's going to be down by their water heater and everything. Uh, we do want to be involved because we want to stop the problem because the person's likelihood of getting out if there is a fire is not too great if we can't get in and give them a hand. This is not a problem that just poor people or working class people or people who live in the Tenderloin have. I, I, I've had cases in Pacific Heights of tenants who are hoarders and clutterers. This is a problem that cuts across all classes, races, everything in our society. So you should definitely understand that. I'd also like to just point out at the back of the room is the president of the Building Inspectors Commission, Deborah Walker. Deborah, um, it, she has been instrumental in the commission in helping support us bringing this summit here to you today, and we'd like to thank her for that. So we thank you for your time. Yeah.